Happy Friday and welcome back to another Human Exception. This week, I'll be providing a big update on the Yuba County 5, the story that we covered in episode 25. Shortly after the release of that episode, I came across a recently published book full of brand new interviews and information, so much so that it deserved its own episode. Were a group of bullies responsible for the men's disappearance? Was Joseph Shans, the man who had a heart attack up in the mountain that same night the boys went missing, was he somehow involved? Or is a beloved town pastor the cause of everything? Take a listen and come to your own conclusions on this human exception. kind of froggy i <laughs> my allergies are so bad right now oh plus yeah, we were just, just outside so i'm like that you know good job me i haven't talked to many people this morning yet so my voice is not yet started that's fair <laughs> that's fair <laughs> it has not it has not warmed up yet like i've been up since seven it's just nathan was asleep until nine <laughs> <laughs> you just talk to the cats just talk to the cats just like just yell at Freya every time she tries to eat the fucking plants. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Every plant except for the one she's allowed to. Yeah. We this I is... grew I grew I grew some cat grass for them. Oh yeah. And so like I brought it to her and she's like, What the fuck is this shit? <laughs> like I can't eat the dirt now. <laughs> <laughs> she, she just meowed out of her. Oh yeah. <laughs> And like I brought it to Asher, and Asher's like, "Perfect, I'm into this." <laughs> She's Aww. like, "Oh, I guess we eat this." Yeah, I need to watch him. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> we grew that once many years ago when Liam was young. He was probably I don't know a year or so, and he ate it down to the dirt and then threw it all back up. It was great. oh no, <laughs> yeah. He 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 drugged himself. Yeah, that's hilarious. It was, and it was only one of those little like four inch pots that you would get at the nursery because we were going to put it in a bigger pot. And I come back from work. I was only working part time, I think, still at the time. And I come back and there's just a trail of dirt and then a puddle of cat. Vomit. Oh, my God. Oh. And he's in the our house was tiny, tiny. And he's in by the front door. We would never come in that way because we always came through the garage. And it was just like, Ugh. Mom, I'm sick. <laughs> yeah, I did something, but I don't know what. And then I discovered I cat grass is wrong for me. Right. <laughs> I don't feel so good. Oh my god, we never grew it again. And anytime, like you, I'm not a big fan of cut flowers, anyways. And a long time ago, I made Jeremy promise to never get me them because Hilly would pull the roses out or whatever individually and scatter them through that oh my god he just wants to give you a romantic evening i know (laughs) but it was just the best because oh my god like the little filler flowers (laughs) she would rip those apart (laughs) oh my god i'm remembering all this now 
Yeah, Freya's oh. definitely gonna vengeance against anything that lives in dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I want the dirt. I want the minerals. It's so weird. Anyways. Uh, anyways, hey. Yeah, so I read a book. <laughs> you read that whole thing already. I read that whole thing in like two hours. Holy shit, Kayla. God damn. And like I have a whole new report. <laughs> Okay. So honestly, when we get to locusts. I started to, but this became a thing. Like it's, it's Special fucking wild. Forward. All right. Yeah. All right. So, Hold on. Let me brace myself. Hold on. Okay. So yeah, that's my <laughs> portion of the episode today. I'll have to do the locust things later. I started getting it. Like this is this is going to be a whole thing. Like I, you know, this is going to be enough for its own episode. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> hey. I absolutely love that you get so sucked into some of this stuff because I feel like if I let myself, I could. And that never ends well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just there's so much stuff in there. And like, you'll see, it's like, wow. like, there was so much stuff I just like couldn't cut out just because it's like, well, could you this explain so much? Or this is what the fuck is this? So, oh my gosh. Well. <laughs> yeah, if we. Uh, if we want to start there, I can kick us off. Let's do it. Yeah, because it's mm-hmm. immediately after the last one. So let's yeah. Do, yeah, let's go. So first of all, I made a diagram. What? Oh my god. I'm so excited. Yeah, so this will help you keep track of everything when we're going. Oh, thank god. Okay, yeah, it's like a cheat sheet. I needed this. Yeah. Alright, so yeah, let's talk about this book. So the... Um, while I was getting the pictures together... Actually, hang on. Move the mic. Um, anyways, so while I was getting pictures together for the page for the U account of five, I stumbled across a Reddit post that had been made 18 days ago, and it was suggesting someone create a video on the U account of five based on new information. So it turns out I totally missed a book that was published last December, full of exclusive new interviews with family members of the men that had disappeared and packed with full of new details. So the book's called Out of Bounds, What Happened to the U account of five, and it's written by Drew Hurst Beeson. So naturally, I got the book and I read it in almost one sitting. And I'm here to share what I found, and it's not just validation. Okay, let's go. Let's. I'm ready. Let's go let's down do this it. rabbit hole. Let's do it. <laughs> so I'm um, gonna update some basic facts as well that we just didn't have this information from before. So like one of the things is the Gateway Project. So as mentioned in my original telling, many question why Matthews had been part of the Gateway Projects as it was a community funded program for the intellectually challenged, and he was a paranoid schizophrenic. Turns out the program was open to a wide array of people with various conditions, including cerebral palsy, cognitive disability, mental illness, emotional issues, epilepsy, and multiple sclerosis. So no, it's not suspicious that he was in there. <laughs> how, did, how does multiple sclerosis fit into this? Okay, I don't know. Like it's it's like a county of a bunch of small towns. So like, so they're pulling resources. Yeah, it's just putting everything that's a little slightly, you know, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Um, yeah so Matthews had actually been going to the center to meet his drug counselor Don and Don was one of um, Gary's biggest advocates so he himself had been an addict that had been clean for 8 years when he took Gary on so he knew what he was fucking talking about Um, so yeah a year before Matthews would disappear he was in a pretty good place Uh, Don felt that his doctors had finally found the right balance of meds and he was encouraging Matthews to avoid temptation and avoid his old habits a particular exercise that Don had Gary do was write affirmations in a small notebook they carried with them. This is going to come up later, so that's the only reason I'm telling you this. 
Okay, fair enough. Uh, but Don still <laughs> felt that Matthias needed to make some new friends and have something to occupy his time with. Gary was feeling pretty old at this point. He's like, I'm 25 and I don't do anything. Oh and my so, God. yeah. <laughs> Fuck we just, off. He hang out with all his friends. He couldn't hang out with his old friends anymore because they were all drug addicts. Yeah, you right. know, and yeah. like, so there's only so much that he could do, and he's just like adjusting to the world again. So, yeah, so Don had remembered that Gary had been on the football team in high school and asked if he had interesting interest in basketball, and he said that he didn't. So, Don asked if he'd be willing to help out the Gateway's team, the Gateway Gators. The men of the group were all eager to learn, and one already had skill, but was really having a hard time, diff- hard time passing that information on to the others. So Gary said sure, and Don led him from his office to the gym where the men were practicing. And then the boys hit it off, and were inseparable ever since. Hmm. Also, aside from basketball, they played. They went and did bowling every Saturday as well. Oh, okay. Hmm. Tight knit group of people. Yeah. So for the book, um, Beeson had the privilege and honor of getting to interview some of the remaining relatives of the boys. One of these was Tammy Mathias, which is Gary Mathis's younger sister. And she had this to say about the Gateway Projects. She said, the Gateway Projects was a place that disabled kids could go for training, help them better themselves, learn a job trade, and help them to possibly live on their own. Gary went there at first for counseling and later was kept on to help with the other guys. He showed them sports, but also helped with other things they asked for. Gary also liked to help with the maintenance around the place, too. So he was like the group's kind of big brother as he was... That like had the most intellectual ability of the rest, and like he could help, and they all listened to him. So, hmm. okay. And we got a little bit more information about the, the individual guys that kind of give a bit more information about things. So it's like, um, one thing is like Jack uh, Hewitt's dad says that his son and the other boys could generally take care of themselves, but also knew that they were very trusting and pr- impressionable. Um, Ted Weir was incredibly friendly with everyone he met. As an adult, he would often wave excitedly at strangers and would become upset for hours if they did not wave back at him because that he thought he'd done something wrong. Oh, man. So, yeah, you think this guy would ignore someone calling for help? Right, right. Um, He also once bought $100 worth of pencils for no particular reason. I just found that was interesting. (laughs) Okay, but that's the perfect building tool. Come on. (laughs) Hundred dollars of pencils in nineteen seventy something. <laughs> like a truck. That's <laughs> a <Yeah>. truckload. <laughs> and according to his mom, Ted was a very loving person. He loved life and he loved people. One thing that was really good about this book is the author really got to know the families and a lot about it was a very personal account account of everything that happened and getting to know the people a lot more than you know the general news stories did. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Sterling was closest was close with Weir. He'd known him for about eight years, and was one of Weir's one of Weir's favorite things was to call Sterling and read him funny sounding names from the newspaper. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. That's really good, right? <laughs> well, close with Weir, he considered Madruga his best friend. Bill was very religious and was known to known to visit people in mental hospitals and read the Bible and other religious texts to them. So, also really cute. And he loved to read and spend time at the library doing research about the mentally handicapped. Oh my goodness gracious. These kids are so wholesome. Yeah, that, yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, Jack Madruga, he uh, served in Vietnam in 1968. 
Um, he was called Doc by his friends, and his most prized possession was his 1969 Mercury Montego. He never allowed anyone but himself to drive it. According to his mother, he was never diagnosed as mentally retarded, quote, but was generally thought of as slow. According to his family, Jack was able to manage his own finances. According to Jack's nephew, George Madruga, Jack was an intelligent and sensitive man, just extremely shy in social situations. His favorite TV show was I Love Lucy. He liked to laugh at comedy shows of, of the time, and he also enjoyed game shows, and they would play board games for hours. Jack also listened to the Motown music, and his favorite group was Diana Ross and the Supremes. And as George Madruga puts it, he loved the music that he could dance to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie Hewitt, he lived on the farm with his family where he played with his beagle bow and dirtbiked around the property. Uh, Hewitt thought of Weir like a big brother and the feeling was mutual. The two were inseparable. Weir would often make phone calls for Jackie because making phone calls caused Jackie to be extremely anxious. And he could not read or write. He was very shy and had a speech impediment. It was reported that Jackie had an IQ of around 40. His mother, Sarah, said that he was a delight. He was just slow, but really happy. And then Gary Matthews. So Matthews wore thick Coke bottle-like glasses. He had incredibly poor eyesight. And without them, he was very close to seeing double. But his poor, poor eyesight was due to a mishap where he'd fallen out of a moving car after he had opened the door. He had a terrible head injury and was blind for four days. And his vision never fully recovered. Matthews hadn't shown of any sign of mental illness as a child and suspected that this accident may have been a prominent factor in the onset of his schizophrenia. Yeah. A sudden head injury, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matthews was a big fan of the Rolling Stones, and prior to his disappearance, he had been the lead singer of a local rock band called The Fifth Shade for some time. According to his sister, they'd even won a battle of the bands at the Uber Study Fairgrounds once. Mm -hmm. And at the time of his disappearance, he was dating his high school girlfriend, Lisa. So yeah, I think it was an idea of who these people were a lot more, and like, they had like a lot going for them and they were happy so yeah like they would run away or something is seems very unlikely yeah that's i was just (laughs) looking at the um the diagram you had made again gosh yeah so a couple extra details about the evidence um we do know that on February 24th, several witnesses did recall seeing the boys at the game. And a few recalled the Montego leaving the parking lot right after the game, uh, shortly after 10 p.m. So there are people that do, did witness them there. Mm-hmm. Um, Madruga's nephew, George, that said that while Madruga wasn't familiar with the road that the Montego was found, he was very confident that Madruga could navigate it in a way that his car would not be damaged. He said, Uncle Doc could negotiate such a road easily. My grandmother and he lived in a, in a house on a rutted dirt road approximately one half mile or more from the main road. He drove such a road nearly every day. So that could explain why there was no damage to the car if he was driving. Right. Okay. Um, back at home, this is just kind of heartbreaking. So um, back at home at 5 a.m., Weir's mother was jolted awake. She went, to see, she went to check and see if Weir had made it home to find his bed empty. She began to panic and called Bill Sterling's mother, who had been awake since 2 a.m., who confirmed that her son hadn't made it home either. Sterling's mother had already called the Madrugas, and Weir's mother let the Hewitts know, who then walked over to the nearby Matthias home to check with them. Sure enough, all five men hadn't come home. By 8 p.m. the next day, the Madrugas' mother called the police. Man. Yeah. Right in the feels. Yep. 
And then we have Lieutenant, Lieutenant Lance Ears. He was part of the Yuba County Sheriff's Office. He was the one that put out the nationwide, nationwide bulletin about the missing boys. And this was a personal case for him because he'd gone to school with Weir and his brothers. Okay. So this is very much like a community thing. Yeah. Everyone was involved. Um, so Browns and Brownsville, that was, there was that little like um, store there where the woman and the owner said that they seen them in a red pickup truck. Mm-hmm. Um, the woman said that the, a person matching Hewitt's description was on the phone for 15 minutes. Now Hewitt is the one that's really anxious about phone calls yeah. whose brothers and friends make the calls for him. So why would he be on the phone for 15 minutes at a payphone in the middle of nowhere? Right. Um, Carol Waltz, the owner of the store, also said he saw several of the men on February 25th, which was the day after the game, and also on the 26th. So they came back twice. Oh. Uh, Joseph Shans, as you will remember, is the guy who had a heart attack and stuck in the mountain the same night the men went missing. While his report seems to be quite reliable and is widely cited, there may be something more to the story than originally cited. There are many different versions of his account, and it's hard to say if this was due to reporting errors or that Sean's had kept changing a story or a combination of both. Regardless, a closer look at Sean's gives us a better idea of his character and raises some questions. One of the discrepancies is how he got home the next morning. One account says he got a ride at the lodge that was uh, about eight miles down from where his car was, got back home where his wife then took him to the hospital. But in another account, he was taken from the lodge directly to the hospital. And interestingly, in one account, he claims he saw a pickup truck behind the Montego. When asked about it later, he said, I don't remember why I said that. I was half conscious, not lucid, hallucinating, in deep pain. Whether I half saw or half imagined the second vehicle, I just don't know. Oh, man. Okay. All right. And for the search, so on March 2nd, uh, about 50 men, some on snowcats, took part in the search, including Hewitt's father and their dog, Bo, who took a snowmobile on their search. March 7th, searchers took to horseback and four-wheelers. An eight-man task force was put together to coordinate the searches, with Plumas, Yuba, and Butte pooling their resources. And I just found this really interesting just because of what we were talking about with uh, Jacob Gray, how, like, no one wanted to work together. Right. Right. And this was, what, 40 years later? Yeah. Yeah. Now, March 8th, the sheriff's office investigated a cabin in the woods near Forbstown after a forest ranger had seen a red pickup truck matching the description that they'd seen in, by Brownsville Park near there. When law enforcement arrived at the cabin, the truck was no longer there, and the cabin appeared to not have been recently occupied. Uh. Hmm. Helicopters would also join the search at this point, combing the area and searching the nearby valleys. So, like, as far as, like, a search team went, they, like, had everything. They had, um... They had dogs, they had snowmobiles, snowcats, horses, helicopters. They were they were looking. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, the search was then sh- sh- uh, was called off until the snow melted because they just really couldn't get that far. Now, yeah. one of the theories was that maybe the men had planned to take a, make a detour on their way home to visit a friend that Matthias had in Forbstown, which is how they may have wound up so far off their path. Kathy Madruga, Jack Madruga's 23-year-old niece at the time, wasn't willing to just sit around and wait for the snow to melt. She suspected that the boys were being held against their will in Forbestown. She had the theory, but... Or she had heard the theory, but Kathy knew of the friend and the kind of people he associated with, and she feared for the worst. Kathy was determined and gathered her help of her best friend and her brother George, insisting that if the men were up there, they needed their help, and she needed George to be a getaway driver. Oh my gosh. She told her grandmother... She called. Yeah. 
She told her grandmother to call the sheriff if she hadn't returned in two hours. Kathy navigated, and once they reached Forbes Town, she directed George down the road to some of the backwoods where many people lived. As they passed through, she saw men with rifles and shotguns hiding in the woods. The area was notorious for drug dealers. There were many properties ripe with booby traps, alarm systems, and whose inhabitants were always armed. She had heard stories of unsuspecting people wandering into tripwires and bear traps and meeting bloody ends. Ugh. And she knew that Matthias's friend was of a similar type. Okay. They approached the property where there was a house with three or four sheds behind it. One had been boarded up. Kathy told George to keep the car running and she and Anne approached the trailer's door and knocked. She never got a response, though inside she could hear a baby crying. Remember, we, the, Sean right. said he saw a woman with a baby. Oh <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like a little freaked out right now. <laughs> yeah. So they knocked again with no answer and then she noticed a small girl moving in the trees behind the trailer. And this drew her attention to the sheds and one of them just stood out to her. She couldn't explain what it was. It was a shabby looking shed with a metal roof overgrown with weeds and it had been bolted and padlocked shut. She pondered what could be so valuable in the shed when suddenly a thought came to her that she couldn't let go. Matthias was in the shed. She was sure. She ran to the shed and pounded on the door, calling for Matthias, not getting a response. She kicked the door, switching back and forth between her feet until they were both hurting. And then she listened for sounds and sighs, but heard nothing. But she was sure. She felt it. She saw another shed nearby that was unlocked, and she wondered if there was something in there that they could use to break the lock. As they opened the door to that other shed, George called them back to the car. They sprinted over to find George sitting in the driver's seat, talking to a weathered-looking man standing outside. His left hand was on the driver's side mirror, and his right hand was wrapped around a Remington 870 shotgun. George said that the man had asked him to leave, and Anne obediently got into the car, but Kathy was still fired up. She asked the man if he knew Gary Mathias, and he said that he didn't, ordering her to get off the property. Gary Mathis is in that shed, and I'm not leaving until I get him out, she said. The man responded with a pump of his shotgun, and she knew that she was beat. The three returned home where Kathy called the sheriff's office and explained what had happened. The police said that they'd go check it out. And not long after, she heard back about their search. They said they checked the property on horseback, but had found nothing. But she knew immediately that this was a lie. The area surrounding the trailer had been pocked with booby traps, and the horses would have easily found themselves ensnared or worse. At this point, she knew she couldn't rely on law enforcement to find her uncle and, her, and his friends, and lost faith in the investigation entirely. Law enforcement claimed that officers did contact people in Forbstown who knew Gary. These friends told the officers that they hadn't seen Gary in over a year. Stinks. The whole thing stinks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's super fucking weird. All right. I don't like it. <laughs> so on June 4th, that's when we'd find the trailer where Weir's body was located. Nearly all the newspapers stated that it was 19 miles from the car to the trailer, which is downright impressive track to make in three to four, six or three to six feet of snow, an area you're not familiar with in sneakers at night. Right. It's estimated that the average person can walk a mile in about 15 to 20 minutes. That's an ideal circumstances with proper attire. Even if they're managing a mile every 20 minutes, it'd still take them over six hours to get to the trailer in the middle of the freezing night. And I'm pretty sure they weren't going that fast. So one of the many puzzling things about the story is how did they do it? Well, it turns out the distance that they traveled wasn't nearly as far. It was stated that the men likely followed the tracks left by the snowcat the day before, which followed roughly where the road to the trailer would be. 
The author remeasured the distance based off of details from a Napa Valley Register article from the same year and has determined it's much more likely that the distance was closer to 11 miles, and that's assuming that they hadn't made any detours. Sure. Yes, I mapped it out on Google Maps myself. <laughs> <laughs> So, which this is still an impressive distance, but it's a lot more achievable. Yeah. And where did this, so where did the 19 miles come from? He wasn't sure. It's not like many things. It's possible that one news article reported it wrong and the others all copied that detail. But yeah, where did the original 19 miles come from? I have a question and I don't think we talked about this prior. And maybe I don't want to you know, jump on your, on your trip. <laughs> you have this coming because you might, but I'm almost like, where are the records from this time? What kind of records? Police records, missing persons records, mm. any, any of it. Yeah. Um, all that stuff seems to be offline. None of it seems to be online at all. Like all the records seem to be located in the actual police station or like in the local records offices nothing's been digitized like the newspapers from that time in that area has not been digitized at all okay i went looking yeah. <laughs> oh i'm sure yeah i'm just i'm surprised that no one's um actually gone to the stations and requested these are like you know city or county hall of records that kind of thing yeah i don't know if they have or not they like it's possible like it like if anyone had done it i would think it would have been like the b trifecta because they had gotten access to all the police records okay that's right but um, oh. yeah, like, and it's possibly entirely had access to them, and this that there wasn't anything of relevance to talk about. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, so the author had a little more detail about the rations that were consumed. Three cases were completely consumed. Each case contains twelve individual meals, things like a, a can of stew, can of crackers, and a can of fruit. A total of thirty-six meals were eaten. So this doesn't really tell us much. Had one person eat 36 meals? How many were they eating in a day? Was there more than one person? We have to assume that there was at least two people, one being Weir, who then would perish in the bed. Madruga and Matthias were the only two that knew how to use the P-38 can opener. So one of them must have been there at some point. Well, we know that Matthias's shoes were found in the trailer. We have no evidence of Madruga being there. And if Matthews had only come in long enough to trade shoes with Weir before heading out, he, he may not have stayed around. Now, when we look at the uh, picture that the diagram I put together, um, you can notice that Madruga's body uh -huh. is between the trailer and the car. So yeah, Madruga and Stuart Sterling can be found between the trailer and the car. And so, you know, one of the things that the police theorize is that, oh, maybe they died on the way to the trailer or maybe they died on the way out. We don't know. Gosh. <laughs> So the fire, one of the many questions that we're left with is why didn't they start a fire? The author states that Matthias would have definitely made a fire if he'd been there, according to statements from his family. He knew how to, and if the others were concerned about breaking rules, this wouldn't have hindered him in the same way as he wasn't confined by the same rigid thinking. But the author poses another theory as to why no fire was lit. What if it was out of fear that someone would see the smoke? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, um, Weir's body, Ted was 5'11", 200 pounds, about the time he went missing. But when he was found, he had lost from 80 to 100 pounds. And it determined by the Plumas County pathologist that, based on the growth of the beard in his face, he had likely lived in the trailer between 8 to 13 weeks before he passed. One of the possible reasons that the other food stores had not been accessed was if the other men had went to find help, leaving Weir behind, he he wouldn't be able to do much. He had lost five toes to frostbite. And his feet were terribly gangrenous. He would not have been able to walk or likely even get out of the bed. But we do know that his body had been wrapped in those sheets. So in in his shape, he likely wouldn't have been able to do that himself. So someone must have done that to him before he passed. Or maybe after, Mm. we don't know. And maybe right. Yeah, and it's suspected that he died two weeks before his body was found. Oh my god. It was that close. Yeah. Now, everything that we've read cites Weir's death as caused by starvation or hypothermia or a combination of that. And yes, he was very cold and he was very hungry. But the actual cause determined by the autopsy was pulmonary edema, often called wet lung. So similar to pneumonia, your lungs and surrounding tissue slowly fill with liquid, and liquid until you can no longer breathe, which Oof. puts stress on your heart until eventually gives out. And this is very likely what killed our cat Thor. So this is um this is a disorder that like it exponentially gets worse like mm-hmm. every moment that you have it and you know the only thing that you can really do is like try and get that person oxygen so it's caused by a number of factors including like a heart attack or disease leaking damage or narrowed heart valves sudden high blood pressure pneumonia kidney failure lung damage caused by severe infection blood poisoning major injury or severe trauma so there's really no evidence of there being any large injuries on him. So that might not be it. But blood poisoning, he may have got blood poisoning from the gangrene on his feet. Mm-hmm. Um, his lung may have got infection infected because he may have got sick. Pneumonia. He may have had a heart attack. We don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, treatments for this always starts by attempting to stabilize the patient by putting them on some oxygen. The condition sets on so quick and gets exponentially worse with each passing moment. So once the person is stabilized, the underlying infection or injuries need to be treated. There is likely that there was nothing that any of the boys could have done for Weir other than get him help. As far as we're aware, there was no oxygen can- canisters or antibiotics in the trailer. It's possible this worse is worsening because this condition is what drove the remaining others out into the wilderness to seek help. So your friend's getting sick here. He's, he's like not able, he's like being able to breathe less and less and less. So you don't know what else to do, but wander out into the wilderness. Oh, man. Uh, June 6th, a local man will help, with the help of tracking dogs, find Madruga's remains, and Sterling was found shortly after. So, where is Matthias? One thing that Matthias' stepfather had been banking on was the fact that even if Matthias had been eaten by an animal, an animal wouldn't have likely eaten those thick glasses, but no trace of them has ever been found. Hmm. All right. Talk about some mountain men. Mountain so, men. So, mountain men. So something I hadn't realized or had seen noted anywhere was just how sketchy the mountains in that area were. Turns out it was common knowledge at the time that there were people living in and around the area where the Montego was found, which had less than sterling reputations. The author found a personal account of an encounter that had been posted on a message board by an anonymous individual. So obviously it comes from the internet, who knows, but I'll read what is written here. So 
I used to live less than a mile from where the Mercury Montego was found. I now live in Oroville, and I'm not surprised by this mystery. There are some very scary characters living up in Barry Creek, Mountain House, and French Creek areas. I was confronted by two very disturbing men way back in the woods while camping up at a site called Haphazard, which is down the long gravel road where Roger's Cow Camp was, which is right near where the car was found. This location is just off of Highway 162 and less, is less than 50 yards from where the Mercury Montego was found. Fortunately, I am a combat veteran, and I had a very strange feeling in my gut that something was off as soon as I arrived at the campsite early that morning. Additionally, I was very well armed, as I always am when I'm out in the remote wooded area, due to a common sense of life-threatening experience that I had as a teen with a large, hungry mountain lion. So these two deliverance-looking mountain men started approaching me from two separate directions, making it obvious that I had been watched for some time. The crunch of falling, falling dry pine needles and the snapping of small brush from the left and right was immediately followed by me cocking my Colt Python 357 Magnum. As I pulled it up from my waistband, I asked in a loud, stern voice, you motherfuckers must be tired of breathing coming at me like this out here. My God, that's the most John Wayne motherfucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's steady. <laughs> it's steady. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh my God. So they claimed that they didn't see me and apologized and headed east to the woods, looking back at me a couple times to see if I was still watching. I returned to camp just as my girlfriend and a few of my buddies and their wives had been pulling up. I told them what happened in the woods. The weirdos obviously had been sneaking around watching us the first night because a couple times we heard screaming from the surrounding woods when they stepped on four-inch wood screws that we'd been sticking through uh, pallet boards originally brought for kindling. They had made warning devices and placed them out in the woods surrounding their campsite while they were acting like they were gathering firewood. (laughs) Oh my god. The second night was scream-free, but they watched with his infra uh, with my infrared n- night scope a group of three men sneaking around out in the woods as if they were on some type of mission they finally headed back where they came from around 2 30 a.m good thing they did too because we were tired of their shit and quite irritated and just wanted to go to bed so no telling what could have happened if they insisted on harassing us yeah so internet story so who knows sure but it's fucking weird weird yep. sketchy scary nonsense drugs people trafficking who knows mm-hmm. so george madruga who is jack madruga's nephew and had been 18 at the time he disappeared um what he has to say is those men were murdered by being forced or coerced to march to their ultimate deaths or demise from the elements no way would jack madruga abandon his vehicle on the road on that mountain without being forced or coerced to do so He took an immense amount of pride in that car. Additionally, upon the off chance that he may have taken a wrong turn, he knew simply to turn around and retrace the route and not drive aimlessly until the road ended. Mm -hmm. Law enforcement did work the case, but I can't help but feel like they could have done more. Just some mentally challenged boys that got lost in the snow, I believe, was their final conclusion. Grace. Yeah. Uh, the newspaper did not help the stigma much at all. Um, yeah, June 19th, 1978, Los Angeles Times article titled Mystery of Retarded Men was was published. Great. Yeah. So Madruga's mother, um, things aren't right. The investigators want to say that the boys got stuck, walked out like a bunch of idiots and froze to death. Why would they leave the car to go and die? There's no sense to this theory, but we can't figure anything that works out right. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. 
Debbie, Sterling's sister, said someone made them go up that road. Bill didn't like the snow. They knew it was cold up there. Madruga wouldn't have driven his car up there because he likes it too much. Yeah. Debbie added that on one occasion, Drac Madruga had refused to drive Jackie home because the road to his house was too bad. It kind of conflicts with George's story about him being used to driving on bad roads, but who knows? Maybe this road was worse. Yeah. Um, Jackie did live out on a farm. Um, right after the boys disappeared, the families and investigators were entirely convinced that foul play was involved. In absence of no answers from the investigators, the families became frustrated and were, were critical of how the investigation was handled. Ted Weir's sister-in-law has theorized that men, the men may have taken, sorry, the men may have seen something taking place at the basketball game that prompted someone to chase after them. So, um, there's something else that I found out about. Um, the author briefly mentions this, but I found a really good Reddit thread about it, written by Top Top Golf UFO, which is where most of this information will come from. So, Mister UFO has been doing. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. UFO had been doing personal deep dive into the Yuba County 5, and he came across some interesting interesting incidents that had happened in the area the years leading up to the boys' appearance. It's entirely possible that this might not have anything to do with the story in the slightest, but it's interesting enough to mention. On February 18, 1975, almost exactly three years before the boys went missing, an arsonist broke into the Gateway Project's workshop and burned it to the ground. Everything inside was destroyed, and the damages totaled an estimate of $150,000. So yeah, let's just break into like a facility to help yeah. special needs people and burn it down. I, yeah, I'm like, what do you get out of that? You don't... Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> Days oh. later, on March 1st, an unknown suspect threw a Molotov cocktail through the window of the main gateway office, but this time, there were only minor damages to the office. Oh, come on. Near the end of March, the gateway director... Donald J. Garrett expressed concern to reporters that the incidents could have been connected to a series of attacks in other special needs facilities in the area. Since January, seven other workshops for handicap have been set on fire. Garrett was worried the attacks could all be connected. However, the LA Times would later claim that this was an exaggeration on Garrett's part and that there had only been one recent fire and it had been the grounds of a local hospital. On April 1st, I'm sorry. Mm-mm, mm-mm, keep going. Mm-hmm. On April 1st, Gateway opened at a new location, but immediately received a bomb threat and had to evacuate. Uh, pardon? It was April 1st, but yeah, still, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. What the fuck? Okay. On April 6th, Garrett was relaxing at his apartment. Just after 8 p.m., someone knocked on his door and Garrett answered. The unknown visitor tossed some form of flammable liquid on Garrett's face and then threw a match at him, lighting him on fire. The fuck? Within a, couple... <laughs> Within a couple Christ. minutes, someone in the complex had noticed the flames and had called 911. In the couple minutes it took for the police to get there, Garrett had passed. It was determined that Garrett's death was the result of foul play. Holy shit. That's like yeah. a badly written screenplay. Right? What the hell? <laughs> On May 31st, Gateway had a welcome party held a welcome party for Daniel, Donald Larson, who was taking Garrett's place as director. He'd been a longtime friend of Garrett and had been and had been the rest of the team's first choice for a successor. The party was held at Kay Joyce's place, which is another Gateway employee, and it was all going well. People were swimming and enjoying themselves when someone spotted smoke coming from the driveway around 9.15 p.m. Oh Two cars had been firebombed. <gasps> <laughs> fuck 
The next day, Hansen's landlord served him an eviction notice because the other tenants were afraid to live in the same building as him. Ah. It was later determined that the firebomb at Larson Party may not have been related as the MO was different from the other fires. Okay. The main component is fire. (laughs) Fire, yeah. And everybody seems to have anything to do with special needs kids. Wow. It's fine. It's fine. I'm sure... This is some top-notch police work that's not happening. (laughs) On July 9th, acting surgeon Ronald Harnish thought the fires were all related and told told reporters that apparently someone really has it in for the Gateway Projects for some reason or another. Aside from that, we don't have much else. We have to assume the attacks are all related because they're all associated with Gateway. Yeah. As of July 13th, police were considering a more personal motive with Garrett, possibly involved in a love triangle. Donald Larson said that it's a personal grudge of some sort, not directed at the facility. We've eliminated the possibility that it might be a disgruntled ex uh, We've eliminated the possibility that it might be a disgruntled ex-employee. But they still think it's something personal. But if it had to do with Garrett, then why were the cars bombed at the new director's place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at the other employee's place? Not long after, Kay Joyce, the person who hosted the party, would be attacked while at an airport meeting a friend. She returned to their car to find the backseat had just been ignited. A lit book of matches had been tossed in with gasoline. Oh my god. What the? Who wrote this screenplay? (laughs) On August 4th, a reflective piece about the tax would be the last time the firebombing incidents would make the papers. Kay Joyce said, I looked over my shoulder now. Sorry, I look over my shoulder now and watch my rear mirror. I think we we all get asked why we still work here. We stay because we've got a job to do. These are neat people. And Larson says, I don't think any of us have any time to worry about it. We're too busy doing our job. In an attempt to add some levity to the situation, he said, we never have any trouble finding parking spaces now, though. People see us and come, see us coming and move. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, so in the comments, someone explained how in the 70s, the disability rights movements had really began to gain traction and not everyone had been happy about it. These folks had to fight hard against prevailing attitudes and that people with disabilities weren't capable of contributing to society. Apparently, there's a really good Netflix documentary on this called um, Crip Camp, which is I'm going to have to watch that out because, uh, yeah, like I didn't realize that people were so aggressive against the disability rights movement. Yeah, there's a oh gosh, what is the activist's name? Um, Judith uh, Human. Mm-hmm. Um who was at the forefront of a lot of that. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely looking to him. I'm really curious about it now. So, yeah. What the heck? <laughs> so, yeah, the 1970s and 80s apparently is a lot more violent period than we remember. Politically motivated bombings and other attacks were very common. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy got all his sources from uh, a bunch of newspapers. He's listed them here, like the Marysville Appeal Democrat, the LA Times, Sacramento Bee. So he cited his sources. So this shit isn't just made up. Gotcha. So wow. yeah, what the fuck do you think about that? <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah, I something was going on. Somebody owed some money or did a, something bad. There was there was cocaine everywhere. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so this is three years before the boys would go missing. So like But still nothing happens between there that we know of. So there's very little things to tie to it other than the fact that, you know, gateways evolved. It it yeah, does that's really fucked up though. Like, it does speak of that particular, up. yeah, that that super violent mindset 
um, against people who have other abilities. And I just don't. Well, and even like the, the idea that, oh, it's just, uh, you know, it's basically the idea that, oh, it was just a bunch of simple boys that got lost in the fucking woods. Mm -hmm. We don't really have time to deal with this. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's uh, ugly. That's so gross. You're saying the quiet part out loud. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like all of these attacks that happened back in um, 1975, they were all focused on the administration, like the office themselves and the people that ran it, not the actual um, participants. So that is kind of a difference in there as well. But yeah, it does speak to, like you said, the general attitude people may have against these kind of programs and the people in them. Which is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Let's move on to something else. <laughs> So Joe Shawn, so this is the guy we talked about, sketchy heart attack dude. Um, and guess what? He's sketched beyond all get out. We're going to find out why. Oh, boy. So the author made contact with a former neighbor of Shawn's, who the author calls Todd. The author, author was able to independently verify much of what Todd told him. So Todd had been living with his cousin and his cousin's wife, a stone throw, stone's throw away from the Shawn's property for many years, and had some stories to tell. Quote, he used to drive around all day drinking beers to get away from his wife. Everyone who lived in the area would see his truck and we'd often have to winch it, or sorry, see his vehicle stuck and we'd often have to winch it free of whatever ditch it wound up in. If he caught us fixing our awful road, he'd bend our ears with bullshit stories and bad advice. He had angina and often mentioned that he had heart trouble. He seemed harmless, but we did track down some wild rumors that originated about him and his wife. The Shans had moved to the area around the same time that Todd had, and it didn't take long for them to make enemies in the community with harmful gossip, not paying people that they hired and just generally being shit people. Quote, drunk or sober, Shans just could not tell the truth about anything and was a blowhard that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Todd and his cousin had a major falling out with Joe Shans when his wife and his wife when the Shans attempted to start a marijuana plant growing operation on their land. <laughs> Reefer madness what oh my sure. god <laughs> dude we're the 70s man <laughs> sure enough Sean's did what you should never do and when growing pot is tell people that you're growing pot um, good job dingus in 1978 a group of local she- thieves showed up in a van intent on stealing the crop and taking the shortest path to the field was right through Todd's cousin's property Todd and his cousin had seen the van and got in the truck to chase them down, causing the van to skid off the road, totaling it in some trees. The impact of the crash resulted in all four of the occupants being injured. After making sure the thieves did not have any life-threatening injuries, Todd and his cousin collected some guns that the thieves had had in their van as souvenirs. Oh my gosh. Todd and his cousin returned to their home where they ran into Sean's wife standing in the driveway, who was screaming at them and accusing them for stealing her cash crop of marijuana. Todd and his cousin then directed Mrs. Shans to the total van that could be located with all their shitty product inside. Oh my god. This is... (laughs) We're a burnt out trailer and a house fire away from meth. We're like... (laughs) Later that day, Todd and his cousins 
uh, Todd and his cousin heard on the local 6 o'clock news and in a newspaper the following day that they were being stopped by police in connection to the van chase. Oh. Todd, <laughs> Todd said that all the locals knew they did it, loved it, and no one gave them up. As could be, could be protected, they were on the outs with the Shanses after that incident. Yeah. The Shanses attempted to grow marijuana again the following year, but their effort was poorly concealed and their loose lips resulted in being raided by the Butte County Sheriff's Office. <laughs> but surprisingly, no arrests were made. The, that fact began to fuel some speculation among the locals that Sean's may have had a, or may have been a police informant. Mm. Another incident that stands out among the many that involve the Sean's Todd, Todd's cousin, was a time when Sean's opened fire with a rifle from his property uphill from Todd's cousin's place. One of the bullets hit a small building on the cousin's property and several others hit the dirt, narrowly missing Todd's cousin's small children who were playing outside. Cool. Wow. The neighbors had company at the time and who had all witnessed the entire incident. So when the sheriff's department was called out, they had a bunch of witnesses, yet Sean's was inexplicably not arrested. This further fueled rumors that somehow he was connected to law enforcement, possibly even before he moved to Berry Creek and was being protected by them. Todd said that eventually Joe Sean's made so many enemies that his stuck vehicles would be vandalized before they could be recovered. He saw his lifted pickup broken down on the way to town one day. It had no wheels on it when he came back to it later the day. Oh <laughs> later the my same god. Day. <laughs> A few years after, Todd moved out of state and he heard that the locals had succeeded in running the Sean's out of town. According to Todd, none of the locals knew what Sean's did for a living. He claimed that he was a substance abuse counselor, but neither he nor his uh, wife were ever seen going to town or going to going to work. When the author asked if Todd thought Sean's might have had something to do with the boys, Todd laughed when the author said that Sean's had been claiming to be up there to check the snow for a family ski trip. He added that Sean's and his wife could barely exist in the same trailer together, let alone vacation together. Anything else Sean told the police was likely made up on the spot because the man was a wet brain alcoholic and a pathological liar. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. A ski trip that uh, I Yeah, that's what he said. Like he was up in that area to check the snow to see if for a weekend ski trip and that's when he had a heart attack. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. The author asked why Sean's might have been up there that night and Todd admitted it was very suspicious. Sean's usually was on roads closer to home around that time of day and around that time of day he was usually sloshed. People he didn't know would get him unstuck and hook the train and he'd chain and he'd drive off no thank you or conversation. Despite the myriad accounts from Sean's, it seems like no one had really questioned his account of the events and the only part of his report that could be corroborated was the fact that he'd had a heart attack. Mm. And the author did some research in heart attacks and found that while doctors can usually tell if a heart attack occurred, it's nearly impossible to tell when exactly it happened. And we know that Sean's had a history of heart issues. So maybe he didn't have a heart attack at all. Maybe he had another reason for being there. Mm-hmm. So the author didn't know if the police verified that Sean's owned a cabin up in the area, but the author did. The first thing he found was Sean's primary pop, uh, primary residence and was surprised to find it was roughly an hour south from where he had his heart attack. Mm-hmm. He then also found records of Sean's owning a property in the area in 1969, but this property was also an hour south of this. Other, sus- other aspects of the story is also bad questioning. So yeah, both his properties were way away from where he was. So, what cabin was he visiting? (laughs) Think about it. (laughs) 
He claimed that despite having had a heart attack, he'd been able to walk at least a couple miles back down to the mountain house. And there's another interesting fact. Sean's vehicle was a VW bug. One of Sean's claims was that when his heart attack started, he lay down inside his car with the heater on to stay warm until he ran out of, out of gas. But turns out the VW doesn't produce any heat when it's not moving, as the author found out at a bug shop website. Quote, Keep in mind, the volume of hot air that's blown into the car is dependent on the fan and the fan shroud, which is dependent on the engine RPM. Other than okay. keeping the cold wind off him, the inside of Sean's Beetle would have been terribly cold that night. And the heater wouldn't have given him anything. Oh my gosh. Shit's made up, dog. Yeah. Jeez. Mm -hmm. And being a local, why would he have not attempted to make the trek back down to Mountain House Lodge sooner? There's another aspect of Sean's story that just doesn't add up. He clearly stated that, that at two different times that night, he saw people on the road outside the car, and he called out to them for help, and they did not respond. When the author asked Todd if the story was plausible, he said, Todd explained that while in the warmer months, the Orville-Quincy Highway, where the car was found, was well very well maintained. When it was cold, all bets were off. He doesn't think that Sean's had lured them up there but more likely that he'd gotten stuck there earlier, couldn't get out, and haven't made up a bit about scouting out, scouting out a campsite. And he says, the rest of his account sounds exactly like the same kind of nonsense he would known, be known to fabricate out of thin air, and for no reason, there's a good chance he didn't remember anything that transpired, or that he pieced it all together after hearing about the incident. Oh, but, uh, so it's like, he may have just missed it up, made it all up just to be kind of part of the fun, mm -hmm. part of the news, who knows. But Todd's cousin and wife feel that Sean's has something to do with what happened. Would an idiot like Sean send them off in the wrong direction? You bet he would. At best, his misdirected, he may have misdirected the investigation, and worse, he caused these men's demise. So, drunk-ass guy finds his kid or something, they ask for directions because they're lost, and he sends them the wrong way. Doesn't explain why his car's up there, but... Yeah... My spidey senses are going off. Unless, like, they, they, they did run into car troubles at the time, and so he's like, oh, yeah, no, you just walk that way, and there's somebody there. And then they send him off to the fucking bushes. Mm. The author would continue his own research and found something else interesting. Sean's daughter, who was 18 at the time, had a cognitive disability called dysphagia. Dysphagia can also cause reading, writing, and gesturing impairments. We find this fact intriguing because it's possibly that Sean's and his daughter could have crossed paths with one or more of the boys to the gateway projects or events for the disabled. Mm -hmm. It was reported in several newspaper accounts, including the article on June 14th, 1978, Napa Valley Register, that the boys attended dances for the handicapped in Sacramento. Could Sean's daughter have been at one of those dances? It must also be considered a possibility that Sean's daughter could have been involved with the program of the gateway projects where the boys were a fixture. Should also be mentioned that Todd reported that Joe Sean's claimed to be a drug abuse counselor. The Gateway Projects also offered drug abuse counseling, which is why Gary was there in the first place. And the final word about Sean's from Todd. So he says, People told me various tales of their run-ins with Joe and Cindy Sean's, but most of them gravitated towards drunken buffoonery and callous disregard. My memory of what I experienced firsthand is sharp, but fuzzy for anything else I heard from others. There were only a couple of local watering holes. The Sugar Pine, the Mountain House, and a little par bar in Bush Creek. And Joe pretty much wore out his welcome in all of them in short order. I stayed out of the bars after almost catching a stray bullet in a parking lot during a brawl. 
The sheriffs are 40 minutes away in Oroville, so it just wasn't worth it. Oh my god. Wow. One com <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Classy neighborhood. <laughs> One common thread with the Sean's family was malicious gossip, which originated with them. They got themselves in trouble multiple times over. Another was stiffing people that they hired for work that was done on their place. They pissed off a lot of people. When it comes to maintaining the road we all use, which was which disappeared yearly, we and our good neighbors toiled and spent thousands with nothing but blabbering contribution by the Shones. Toss and Joe's vehicle vehicular misadventures, which many which were many, and you've pretty much got the picture, which was more miserable than it was interesting. <laughs> did Joe sometimes get a kick in the ass or a punch in the face? Yes, he did. Now, if the Shawns has turned up dead, you'd have the making of a good whodunit because there'd be 50 suspects with that with motive for that. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so this guy sounds like a complete tool. Whether or not he was maliciously involved or involved at all in this, it's hard to say. Right. But also makes him a pretty shitty witness, too. Yeah, jeez. All right, so exactly 40 years and two days after the boys went missing, the B trifecta would deliver their two-part article in 2019. The first part went into good detail about what happened, but the second part immediately set the tone with the subtitle, Were Four Mentally Disabled Men Set Up to Die in the Woods? Oh. Four, not five. Yeah. Mm. So Matthias' niece reacts. So this is the article that I was telling you about that tried to pose this all up as Matthias as being like this like crazed killer that lured right. his friends out to the woods, right? Right. So yeah, um, his, this is what his niece, niece has to say. Gary Matthews was my uncle, and his sister was my mother. These articles are actually half-truths, or skewed to paint a picture that just isn't true. They did not reach out to us or have permission to use my family's names either. They want to tarnish my uncle's character to have a villain for their stories. I get it. We all want answers, but my uncle was not violent. He had a mental illness. Yet he was sweet, quiet, artistic, and absolutely loved women and children. There is no good explanation for all the allegations recently put out about him. And again, you're only getting half of the stories there. Mm. He was very close with my mom and his own mother was his best friend. So please have an open mind and remember his family does exist. All of them were on that mountain looking for him, including my father. These mm. are memories that still haunt me and haunt them. Can you imagine never knowing what happened to your brother, son, uncle for 40 years? Let me tell you, it's still painful. My family hasn't talked because it opens old wounds. And they, they don't want to revisit. So please have some compassion and understanding. I truly hope we all learn the truth of what happened to my Uncle Gary and his friends. Mm. Yeah, so like this is the newspaper that dredged up all the stuff about his past and like his violent incidents and his um, breaks and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And painted them all in very, very poor light. Cool. Good job, y'all. Mm -hmm. And Tammy, which is his sister, says that she believes that people drag on Gary because just because he was never found. Which makes sense. Yeah. It, it's still shitty. Yeah, people suck. Yeah. Um, so one of the sources that was titled for the B article was a guy named Gary Whitley, who had been married to Matthew's sister, Sharon, the one who committed suicide in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, Whitley had been going through a divorce with Sharon when the boys had disappeared. He was quoted in, previously in the previously mentioned Sacramento Bee article saying th that drugs had warped Matthew's brain and that he was not mentally stable. But Tammy says that Whiteley's relationship with her with her family was incredibly volatile and was caused for many calls to the local police. It was also reported that Whiteley himself was no stranger to drugs and assaulting people. In fact, according to Tammy, Whiteley had once burned her mother's car to the ground. Whoa. So this is one of the guys that they, that they got quotes from to speak out against Matthews because he seems like a great person. Yeah, cool. 
has no personal like vendetta against the family at all. Um, okay, so relationship with the group. Um, Matthias thought himself as one member of a five-person group. Some of the other boys' family members said that they thought of him as more of a fifth wheel in his relationship with the four other boys in the group. While some of the families had their suspicions of Matthew's involvement in their disappearance, on the one-year anniversary, the families wrote an open letter to the Mid-Valley Voices. The idea does appear to have belonged to Matthew's stepfather, as his name was first signed at the bottom of the letter. So this is the letter. Does it seem that long as a year ago, February 24th, 1978, when five young men disappeared from our area? To all the parents and families of each, it has been longer, a lifetime. Each of us has had our share of fear, pain, and sorrow. But we've also received a lot of sympathy and love from friends, and even from people we've never had the opportunity to meet personally. So please let us again say thank you to all those people who gave their time, work, and efforts for the recovery of the four that were found. Also, let us be a reminder to all that Gary Mathias has never been located. Please don't stop, stop looking or let time dim your memories of the man who lived in your, in your midst in the majority of your lives. There is still a reward. There's still a reward fund being held at a local bank, and it will remain there until all five men are accounted for. A lot of questions have been answered and possibly never will be. Why were they in the area where the car was found? Was someone chasing them? Who was in the pickup seen parked behind the car? Why did they have the car? Why did they leave the car and wander off in the snow when they could have easily driven back down the same road that they drove in on? The car was not stuck in the snow, as was reported. Mm. They each had been. They each had some problems, but stupidity certainly was not one of them. Why did the Butte County Sheriff's Department refuse the help of the Forest Rangers to go to the trailer camp with snowmobiles in March? At least one, and maybe others, may have been rescued at that time. Which, like. If, we, if what happened with Weir is true, he was alive two weeks prior to being found. So if they had gone on March, they would have found him. I, I I don't know if I can say that's the most disturbing part of all of this, but it's mm-hmm. way up there. Yeah. So questions, but no answer. Bitterness, some anger, sometimes bewilderment, always. When your son leaves home with friends to go to a basketball game, do you always put your arms around him, give him a kiss and remind him how much you love him? You really should. He may never come back to you. Oh. So yeah, this was wrote, written and signed by all the families um, a year afterwards. And like, yeah, they're still looking for Gary. You can see that there was some bitterness there about what happened with mm-hmm. the police department. So there's definitely some questions about if they actually did everything that they should have or could have. And yeah, like ra- the Rangers were willing to go out there. <laughs> So like, hey, we got this trailer out there. Um, maybe they went that way. <laughs> Please look, yeah. Mm-hmm. Boy, this oh, that feels so familiar. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. So, um, some, a bit of history on Matthias. So. Please know that there's been some inconsistency in news reports on Matthias run-ins with the law, and the chronologically event chronology of the events is really unclear sometimes. So the arrest that we talked about before the military brace turns out um, he had been arrested for going AWOL. And a story about punching a cop is a little more interesting than originally portrayed. Matthias called two surgeons and a deputy over to his cell. When they opened the door, a completely naked Matthias walked into the hallway, punched one of the surgeons, causing blood to spill from his mouth and nose. Gary then attempted to punch the other surgeon, but was quickly subdued before he was able to do so. Then Gary was quoted at the time saying, I've been in the army. I don't like it. I thought if I hit a cop, maybe they'd let me out. It was right after this that he was discharged from the military for having schizophrenia. Um. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just like he walked up naked. Uh, yeah, I'm a little, 
I'm a little stuck on that. Well, it's Not like it, this would be the time that he'd be, he'd be diagnosed, right? So he was probably having a mental break of some kind at the time. That could very well be. And it also would explain why his explanation makes no damn sense. Yep. Um, Oregon. So Tammy tells of an unpleasant experience that Gary had in Oregon before he went to go stay with his grandmother. She said, Gary had gone to Oregon with some so-called friends. They locked him in a closet for almost a month and had fed him cat food. He oh. broke loose and hitchhiked home in two days. Fuck. What? Yeah, this is the bad guy that like lured his friends into the woods. Um. I, okay. Wasn't expecting that. No. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, one of the suspicious things that Matthew's family did was refuse to be involved with the show Unsolved Mysteries. According to Tammy, when the author asked about Tammy about this, she said that this was the first that she had heard of it. She said that she was a fan of the show and that the family would have definitely loved to have had national media involved in trying to help find Gary and provide new leads in the case. She said her mother never mentioned the show contacting her. So this was another thing that's kind of used against the Matthews is like, oh, they knew that the son did something. Right. right. But apparently the sister had no idea. <laughs> Hmm. Okay. And so, final thing, opinions about that. Um, Tammy says that Gary did not hurt those guys. Ted Weir had lived 13 weeks in that trailer. Someone took care of him. I know Gary did. I believe he had to watch over all of his friends before he left on foot to find his own confused way out. He would have contacted one of us if he'd been alive himself. It's been 42 years, and my tears keep flowing like it was yesterday. Oh. And David Hewitt, who's the brother of Hewitt, said that, no, we, the Hewitt family, do not believe that Gary Mathis was involved. And then the Madruga family, George, the uh, nephew, says that Gary Mathis is still very suspect of the disappearance of the boys. He believed all along that Mathis was key to the whole mystery. I totally believe that he was involved in one way or another. So it seems like of all the families, Madrugas is the family the most suspicious about the Matthias situation, but mm. other than that, the, the other ones all seem to stand by them. Mm. So there's another set of theories that I hadn't found out much about prior to this book, as Matthias had a troubled history and it's well known that he had spent some time with some savory people during his time with drugs, and sometimes they took advantage of him because of his challenges. So I've collected together some statements and theories wherein Matthias wasn't actually the person that caused the problems for the boys, but he had been the target. So six months before his disappearance, well, everything I had read, even the Salacious B report, said that Matthews had had a clear record for the two years leading up to his appearance, disappearance. Tam- Tammy told the author of an event that happened six months prior to his disappearance. He had been at a party where he had been given a spiked drink, resulted in him being out in the street acting high and getting apprehended by the cops. According to Tammy, the reason Gary had blown up was that he was being trans- he was being harassed by druggers and such in a lousy town of Olivehurst. A lot of a lot of sorry, a lot was going on back then, naked to most eyes. Tammy believes that Gary was intentionally given a spiked drink that caused him to have a bad reaction. That same evening, Gary's mother admitted him to a mental hospital after he asked her to do so. She fully remembers Gary's run-ins with the law enforcement since she was only a few years younger than him. Tammy also contends that Gary was doing very well on his new drug regiment and was very excited about his basketball game and the game in Chico and playing the next day in the game for Special Olympics. So, like, mm-hmm. he fell off the wagon once in the two years and immediately asked his mom to bring him to the mental hospital. Gosh. And he fell off not even of his own choosing. Like, someone, someone drugged him. Right, right. Yeah. Damn. 
The brawl at Beer's Market. So when Tanya was asked what she think caused the men to go up in the mountain, she suggested that it might have something to do with the brawl that happened in the market, parking lot of Beer's Market the night after the game. So reading the book, this is the first time that I've heard of this, and it seems like I wasn't the only one, as the author hadn't heard of it before either. She explained that the story had been reported to Lieutenant Ayers by a man that was related to the store owner. Ayers then told the Matthews family. A group of men approached Jackie Hewitt in the parking lot of the store and started taunting him. Gary Matthews was said to have jumped in to defend Jackie, and the larger fight broke out between Gary and the group taunting Jackie. Mm-hmm. Gary would have been the only one in the group that would have been able to or know how to defend himself. Tammy said that she had heard that the brawl was broken up by the store clerk. The author couldn't find any news reports substantiating this. There, a woman claiming to be Jackie Hewitt's sister-in-law posted on a true crime blog, true, true, true crime blog, wow, true crime blog, that she believed that there was a fight at Bears Market and the men started fighting, possibly chased the boys after leaving the store, causing them to become lost. It has been written that Ted Weir's sister believes that the brawl altercation, brawl slash altercation at Bears Market or after the game was happened. So there. Multiple people do believe that there was this fight that happened. Okay. The author, the act, the author contacted Hewitt's sister-in-law, Mary, to see what her account on the brawl was, but she did not wish to comment on anything related to the Yuba County Five. But the author did make contact with Mary's daughter-in-law, Brandy, who was very accommodating and was able to get many of the written questions for Hewitt, for the Hewitt family, answered by Jackie Hewitt's younger brother, David. The author also also asked if David had ever heard about gun shell casings found in the back of Madruga's car. The author had read that somewhere, but didn't find any newspaper reports, so he assumed that it was just made up. It was an internet rumor. To mm-hmm. his surprise, David said, yes, there were gun shells firing a gun into or at the boys. I believe, or, sorry, firing a gun into or at the boys, believed to scare the boys so that, so that they'd run. There was gun shells in the fucking car. Jesus. That's oh terrifying. God. What the fuck <laughs> I yeah the mm. this just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder. Right, this is why I had to do this. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, and and it's already so long ago that yeah, a lot of people are probably dead. Yeah, yeah, most of them are. Yeah, like pretty much anyone or who have had anything to do with this would be pretty much dead. Directly. For, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. So the dam, there's a common rumor that Matthias was thrown over the Oroville Dam. Oh, hang on, I've got a map. Ooh, a map. All right. Mip, 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 mip. Mip. So this one's kind of zooms out a little bit further there. And so, yeah, the dam's marked down there at the bottom. And the, like, orange road is the road, the main road that they were on. Okay. Wow. All right, the dam. So Tammy believes that. So yeah, there's there's that rumor that he got thrown over a dam. So Tammy believes that this rumor came from a man named Alan Martin. A couple months after the bodies had been found, a man named Alan Martin stopped by the Matthews residence. Weighed down by a guilty conscience, Alan went on to tell the story about the night the men had disappeared. He said he'd been with a group that had stopped the boys on the bridge near the Oroville Dam. One of the men started slapping Jackie Hewitt to hear him whine. It was known that Jackie would start to make a guttural whining sound when he was distressed. Oh. Mm. Mm -hmm. This angered Matthias and launched himself at the man harassing Jackie, causing the rest of the Allens group to jump on Matthias. 
Tammy did not recall if Alan said that Gary had been thrown over the bridge or not, though. She did recollect that Alan claimed that Glenn Baker was the person who, after the fight, drove Jack Madruga's car up the mountain to where it was abandoned. Tammy said that she assumes that that when the car was driven up the road, the boys were all inside, and at one point they were ordered to get out of the car. Uh, Once out of the car, the boys were threatened or frightened by someone, and they took off running into the freezing woods, perhaps, or perhaps they had witnessed Gary's murder and had seen the body thrown over the dam. But this is yep. totally... Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said that her family hired a diver to search or- Lake Orville based on the story told by Alan, but no sign of Gary was ever found. For over 25 years after his disappearance, Tammy would throw flowers in Oroville Lake in remembrance of her brother. Tammy doesn't believe that Gary was thrown over the dam. And she said if Gary was thrown over the dam, they would they would not have they would not have any evidence that Gary was ever at the trailer then. Mm. We know that Matthews' shoes were at the trailer, but Tammy said she actually went to the trailer herself and found some handwritten notes that belonged to Gary, scraps of paper that had something similar similar to journal writing on them. She said, Gary took notes to himself like a diary and several of the writings were found inside and it was checked by a specialist of writing and they matched Gary's handwriting. The author was not able to find any other account of Gary leaving notes at the trailer. Tammy said the notes contained only religious passages and affirmations and encouraging words about getting through tough circumstances and did not contain anything pertaining to what may have caused the boys to abandon their car and head uphill. And the police took the pieces of paper and never returned them to her. But we do know that Matthias would write affirmations to himself in a notebook. So that lines up with that. I, okay. That just went from weird to what the fuck. Mm-hmm. Mm. You wait. <laughs> God damn it. Tam- I- <laughs> um, Tammy didn't know if Alan ever told the police the story. But Matthias' mother had. But unfortunately, Deputy Arrows was not able to question Martin because he died two, two days later. Poor oh, damn. Martin was found dead of a heroin overdose on a couch in his friend Carl and Anna Gage's house. But Martin was known to favor pills and had never been known to use heroin. Tammy says that Martin had been brought to the Gage house as his friends thought he had just passed out and they put him on the couch and left. Anna found him the next morning and called 911. Martin's girlfriend said that the night before some guys took him out of the house and then she never saw him alive again. Oh my god. Tammy also added that one of the men that she believes was part of the group that was with Alan and the still living per- is still a living person of interest was a man that drove a red si- uh, stepside truck. Mm-hmm. She thinks that the red truck could be the one that was reported by Joe Shawns or at the Brownville. Not long after Alan's suspicious death, the man who owned the red truck moved to Arizona. Top the ride. I want to get off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the pastor. There's one more theory that the book discusses that I'm still reeling over, and it all started with a woman named Jessica. Oh, boy. So the author had come across a post online by a woman named Jessica who claimed to be a relative of Matthias, and this was later confirmed. She wrote that she believed that a local man who still lived in the Marysville area was responsible for the boy's disappearance. Jessica further stated that there was a lot that the public did not know about the case. Of course, many people responded to her and claimed responded to her claim and asked her to reveal the name of the person she believed was responsible for the boy's disappearance, but she never responded back. A crime blogger for Yuba Yuba City area responded to the same message thread, claiming that she knew who this individual was and that it could not be revealed as they still live in the community and are somewhat prominent. The author contacted the blogger to ask some general questions and was surprised when she gave out the name without him even asking. 
The blogger suspected this person had a bad history with Matthias going back years and had made threats against him in the past. The author purposely chose not to share the name, person's name either, but he could say this. At some point, they became a pastor. The author was able to verify that this man had known Matthias and his family very well, and he had an extensive criminal record involving drugs and violence. From all appearances, the person turned their life around in the 1980s and has had no further problems with law enforcement. When the author asked Kathy Madruga about this, um, Madruga's niece, she said that she knew the pers this person of interest very well and that it was highly likely that they were involved. She also said that many people with whom Gary was social knew he was planning to go to the basketball game in Chico that fateful Friday night and that may have presented an opportunity for a person or a group of persons to plan some sort of attack on Gary. The author asked David Hewitt if he knew of a local man that might have had it out for Matthias. And he said, yes, someone locally did this. We cannot disclose any names as he's a pastor. We all know the name of the guy who did this. Another of the Hewitt family members has referred to this pastor as a town bully. It should be noted that at the time of the boy's disappearance and death, the man of whom we're speaking with is not is not a pastor, was not a pastor at that time. The Madruga family was not pleased with the effort put forth by law enforcement during its time of what had happened in the boys. The Forest Service trailer and Jack's cars were, were never fingerprinted. So Kathy's aunt Janet did some investigation on her own. Aunt, Jan Aunt Janet gathered the facts and came to the conclusion with absolute certainty that she knew who was responsible for the death of her brother. Ten years after her brother's disappearance, she was ready to confront that man. She arranged to meet him one evening at a Marysville restaurant, but she never told anyone about this or what had occurred during their encounter until 2018. Janet told Kathy all about her research and what had happened. Janet had inherited a gun from her grandfather. That night, she loaded it and put it in her purse. Janet was not a violent person. She never had wanted to harm or kill someone before, but this man, what he had done, it was enough to drive mild-mannered Janet to murder. So she went to the restaurant, and she told him what she'd be wearing, and when he arrived, he found her without problem. He sat down and said, you must be Janet. She'd gone over the speech a million times in her head, but she found herself without words. He said, you said you wanted to talk to me in person. Well, here I am. I don't know what you... And then she said... I know you're responsible for killing my brother and the other boys. You know why I'm here, she said matter-of-factly. I am going to kill you. She pulled a gun from her purse, holding it under the table out of sight, but he knew from the look in her eyes that she had a weapon on him. She began to speak, but sorry, he began to speak, but she didn't hear him. Her hands were shaking. It was like the world still stood still. According to Janet, she heard the voice of God telling her to put the gun down, that two wrongs don't make a right, and her hands fell into her lap. Realizing the gun was no longer pointed at him, the man got up and ran out of the restaurant, yelling about getting away from a crazy woman. That night, Janet slept the deepest sleep she slept in years, still haunted by the specter of sorrow, but no longer possessed by the demon of revenge. Six months after Janet told this story to Kathy, Janet passed away. Just everyone fucking dies. That is... Mm, no. <laughs> Kathy yep, told the author... <laughs> Kathy told the author this story over the phone and the how Janet said this man would become a pastor and the, the author was stunned. He hadn't mentioned the, the story of the pastor to Kathy yet. He asked Kathy the name of the man that Janet had, Janet had met, but the name she spoke didn't sound remotely like the name the author had heard. The name she gave was uncommon. and he asked Kathy if she'd ever heard of this man before her aunt had mentioned him and she replied that when she was a child growing up in Marysville, there was someone by that name who lived nearby, but she didn't really know the man well. After this call, the author reached out to Tammy again and asked if she'd heard of the man from Janet's tale. 
And she said, of course, I, do. I have. I just talked to his sister last week. He, di he died just a few months ago. Tammy told him that the man had never been a pastor. He'd always work construction. He knew Ma Matthias really well, and he and the group of, had a, he had a group of friends that they frequently hung out with. She then added the man had that this that this man had known the pastor, but they weren't friends. She said the pastor did not have any friends, but that some people hung out around him just out of plain fear. Said, quote, we he was the kind of person that people just didn't say no to. He just got his way. The author suspects that maybe Janet had mixed up the names, that maybe the name had that she had mentioned had actually been part of Martin's group. It had been 30 years since Janet had in her encounter. When he thought things when he thought things couldn't get stranger, Tammy recalled that the man had named the man that Janet had named had a tragic history. In 1975, his 12 year old brother had been murdered, and the killer was never caught. She said the fam that his family all suspected the pastor was responsible. What? That's what. <laughs> mm hmm. So where's Gary now? Years ago, Kathy Madruga had just got off a long shift at her job for the Forest Service. On her way home, she decided to stop at her parents' bar to get herself some dinner and check in with them. When she arrived, first thing she did was go to the bathroom at the back. And when she left the bathroom, she noticed the bar was packed. Virtually every table and stool were taken. And then she saw a man sitting on the third stool from the door, and he looked right at her, and her stomach dropped. It was Gary Matthias. She ran into the kitchen, telling her parents, and her mom told her to call the cops while she went to the bar. Soon as Kathy was off the phone, she joined her mother up front, but Gary was gone. They searched every corner of the restaurant in the nearby area, asking their customers if anyone had seen him, but no one had. The deputy showed up 15 minutes after the call and took Kathy's statement. The next day, they asked Kathy to come to the station and take a look at a photo lineup to pick Matthias out from it, and she did this with no problem. To this day, Kathy insists that the man she saw was, was Gary Matthews. Man. Tammy also shared a story about a time that she thought she had seen her brother. Long after he disappeared, when she was working as, an, at a nurse, at a, uh, working as a nurse at a hospital, she'd worked a long shift and still had two hours to go before she, she could head home. She was getting ready to do one of her rounds and headed for the first room on our list, room 320. She goes into the room with a big smile and asks the inhabitant how they were and if they needed anything. It was a man in the bed with his left arm up in a sling. She grabbed his chart, reading it briefly before looking at the man closer. And her heart stopped and the clipboard fell from her hands as she stared. It was Matthias, she was sure. The young man broke the spell she was under by answering the question that she'd forgotten she'd even asked. I, I don't feel bad, he said, I'm just in some pain. Can I get something for that? And he sounded like Gary, too. When she asked his name, he said Gary, and her head was spinning. Gary Matthias? No, Gary Anderson. She said, where do you come from? How did you end up here? I was in a car wreck on Arboga Road, he replied. Then noticing that the nurse was staring at him strangely, he asked, is something wrong? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, sure, Tammy stammered as she attempted to pull herself together and pick up the mess that she'd made on the floor. Do you know a man named Gary Matthias? Gary Matthias is my brother. Do you know him? No, he replied. I don't know him. You look just like him and you talk like him. Are you sure? Does that name sound familiar at all? She asked pleadingly. And she was trying to help will him to say yes, to say that he had not known who he was for a while. Maybe the, Gar the name Gary Matthews had jarred a memory and that yes, he was Gary, but her brother whom she loved, her long-lost brother who had now returned home. Yeah, I'm sure I don't know him. Could you please see about getting me something for this pain? She pulled herself together as best she could and went to the nurse's station to submit a request for a doctor's signature for Damerol for the patient in room 320. 
At the nurse's station, she asked the staff if they knew anything about this guy. Now, they didn't know much. Gary Anderson, age 32. He had been in a car accident and would be staying for a few days. For the rest of her shift, the same thought kept going through her head. Even though the man in 320 looks like my Gary, exactly like my Gary, he couldn't be my Gary. But he looks and sounds like my Gary, exactly like my Gary. So he has to be my Gary. Tammy left the hospital, shocked that someone could seem so much like her brother, yet not be. Perhaps it's just wishful thinking, she said. She decided to sleep on it and check back the next day. Tammy returned to the hospital to find the man was no longer there. Surprised, she went to the nurse's station and asked what happened. And they said, someone checked him out last night. And she said, I thought he was supposed to be here for a couple of days. He was, the head nurse responded without any apparent concern. But someone checked him out last night. His father, I think. Go figure. Although Gary Matthews' family had been absent from the media in recent years, on February 24th, 2008, on the 30th anniversary of Gary's disappearance, they ran the following obituary in the Marysville Appeal Democrat. Part of us, yet parted from us. Managing grief that becomes us. Departed in body, eternal in thought. Birthday gifts no longer bought. Gone to the heaven, far above us. Parted from us, forever from us. Love always. Oh. Mm -hmm. a couple of random theories um people like to (laughs) one of the fringe theories of what happened to the yuba candy five blame some sort of supernatural force for leading the boys at the cold mountain this case is sometimes referred to as america's diet datlov pass and this is a reference to the datlov pass incident some online theorists believe that the both of the incidents may have been the result of some sort of paranormal phenomenon such as an as the ufo or sasquatch causing the groups to flee in panic (laughs) I, I was going to say, if Bigfoot's not involved somehow. <laughs> um, forced at the mountain. So the, if the boys had indeed been forced at the mountain at gunpoint or by some other threat, who was the one to do so? The stories about the fight in Bear's Market and the supposed encounter at the Orville Dam would seem most likely to lead to such a result. And was the pastor involved? <laughs> no one knows. Um, could Joe, Joe Sean's sight of a second veal possibly be the red truck that was parked behind Jack's Matego? explain that the boys maybe have been followed up Quincy Mountain or could they have been following a second vehicle and then got stuck mm-hmm. uh, the investigators missed how meticulous Jack was about carrying his car George Madruga really stressed that if Jack was unfamiliar with the road and he thought he would damage his car he would flat out refuse to drive on it if Jack had to go down that road he could have been able to make it so the vehicle wouldn't have been damaged and he would very carefully avoided ruts or obvious potholes but if someone other than Jack had been driving the car he would not have been as careful as as jack would have been because he wouldn't have cared about the car so it most likely was jack that was driving it for the supporting theories that jack drove the montegos the fact that jack's car keys were found in its pocket when his body was recovered so previously i there was no evidence of what happened to the keys but it looks like the keys were found on jack so okay. that means he must have been the la- like he probably was the one that had driven so uh, then someone must have taken care of for Ted Weir for the weeks that he survived in the trailer. Jackie, Jack, and Bill would have all been capable of doing that. Mm. With the authorities believing that Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling had succumbed to the elements before they could even make it to the trailer, only Jackie Hewitt would be left to take, for, take care of for Ted if Gary was not there. Jackie was not able to care for himself and would not have been able, would not have been able to take care of somebody else. So we know that of the group, Jackie Hewitt was the simplest one. Right. So, like, he he would have struggled in the situation, as you think this Gary must have been there. Mm-hmm. 
Jack Madruga's niece, Kathy, told the author that it was no secret that the boys were afraid of Gary and what he might do. She added that they did not want Gary to go to the game with them. They were too scared to tell him that he could not go. And this is the first statement directly of this nature. Um, Could Gary still be out there off his medication and not know who he is? Could he be among the homeless people in California, Oregon, and Washington? It's also likely that Gary made it just far enough in the trailer that his remains were just never found after he surrendered to the elements. Mm-hmm. The boys had to have some sort of reason to go up on that mountain. Either they were told to or followed someone under threat, or they were in the process of fleeing from somebody. If Jack or Madruga did not drive his own car up there, it's still hard to explain why he would have left it with the passenger side window partially rolled down if he'd not planned on coming back. Mm-hmm. That is something that Jack Madruga simply just would not do unless under dist- duress. An intriguing theory was proposed by a message board poster called Earl Rawl, basing this theory on understanding that there were witnesses to Joe Sean's having a drink in the Mountain House Lodge. Earl Rawl speculates that Sean may have stopped at the Mountain House after he got up the mountain, not on his way up to the mountain, as Sean's claim. That he had a run-in with the boys, and in order to establish an alibi, Sean's walked down to the mountain and had a drink, and then walked back up to his car until the morning. He wasn't supposed to, like, according to his neighbor... He'd kind of been kicked out of most of the drinking places in the area, but he'd gone for a drink at the Mountain Lodge, and apparently there was someone to validate that. So had he gone there before or after he got stuck? And then faked the heart attack to, like, get himself out of trouble. Right. Jeez. There's a lot. Oh, my God. So there, that is all the updates that I have. Holy <laughs> shit. So murder and dams. Murder. Special needs targeted assholes in 1975. Firebombs. Firebombs. Uh, Firebombs. What is happening? I, yeah. This is what I think is so... It's like we were talking about last recording this was so frustrating about these cases is that through a combination of human ineptitude and people just not going down the right rabbit hole what's the chances that they're going to be answers now 40 years later yeah it would be incredibly i would be surprised if we got an answer on this Right. Yeah. You go to and a state like, sale and in the attic is a I did it and here's how. No, <laughs> like that's not <laughs> <laughs> like most likely to me, I do think that a Gary passed away on the mountain. That yeah. um yeah, as his remains just haven't been found. Like it's a massive fucking park. Right. Mm-hmm. With, with snow and mm-hmm. yeah. Snow full of wildlife. Yep. And they didn't know where the fuck they were going. So if he'd wandered off to get help, who knows what direction he would have went in. Right, a, a, a paranoid schizophrenic trying to wander off and find help. Yeah, yeah. He could have stepped off a cliff and not known it until he was tumbling. To, yeah, yeah, like. Yeah, it was exactly. It was a mountain too, so it's right. like in the snow, in the snow, with tons of snowstorms happening around that time. Yeah, slipped, fell, broke his neck. Yeah. Gosh. Oh yeah, you know it's. Entirely possible somehow he did get out, get to somebody, and he just, like you said, maybe just completely disassociated and has no idea who he is. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. But most likely, I don't think he made it just because they, they did put notices out to all the local mental hospitals and hospitals that Ford, that Gary might have wound up at. 
So he would have had to kind of go somewhere off the grid or had happened to encounter someone who didn't wasn't aware of it for right. them to not report it. Right. But how or the reason why they got up there, that is fucking <laughs> history. That feels like the crux, right? Like why? Yeah. Why were they up there? And if you knew that, then you'd probably be able to fit the pieces together. Yeah, and then we have the fight at the market, I mean the fight at the the bridge. Right. Both fights Which, are described very similarly. Jackie was the target of them, and then Matthews jumped in to defend them. They were just in different locations. Oh my gosh. Mm. And like no one has come forward from the market incident. Like like someone that was friends with the owner told the police about the market incident. But the guy that had actually been involved in the bridge incident came forward and told the family and then died mysteriously. Mm-hmm. Two days later. That mm. This feels all very bad. Like, it, it just... It's too coincidental? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. I do think that something malicious must have happened. I think that um, most likely it was somebody associated with Matthias that kind of drove them up there seeking revenge or something like that. Or, like, yeah, they were picking on... They were picking on Hewitt and... They killed Matthews by accident and then like, well, we got to get rid of the evidence and get rid of these guys. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or they, they stumbled into something. Yeah. Considering the amount of like yeah. gun and drug violence. Totally. In the area. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So. <laughs> part two. Oh my God. <laughs> and this is the end of the story until a new book comes out. <laughs> That's it for this weekend. Next week, Hallie and Nathan tell us all about a small Pennsylvania town that reportedly has a gate to hell and weird weather incidents, including uh, the famous meat shower of Kentucky. As always, all links, sources, and pictures can be found on our website, thehumanexception.com. Do you have an idea for something you'd like us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or just want to say hi? You can do that in so many ways now. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at thehumanexception. Email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com or come join us on the new Discord server. You can find the link on our contact page. Keep on being excellent, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Mm-hmm.